Dr. Kristen Oja here, entrepreneur and functional medicine expert. Welcome to Little By Podcast, where our goal is to empower you to achieve optimal health, one step and one episode at a time. Taking a functional medicine approach will cover a variety of health and wellness topics, from how to optimize performance to how to balance your hormones and everything in between. This podcast is for educational purposes only, so please be sure to consult your healthcare provider before incorporating any changes into your daily routine. Now grab your headphones and let's go for a walk as we take steps towards becoming your best self. Today's episode is for anybody that would classify themselves as a high achiever. Maybe you feel like your plate is always overflowing a little bit. You need to do a little bit more. Uh, Maybe you struggle with anxiety. This is an episode you don't want to miss. We have Dr. Nicole Thaxton, a licensed professional counselor, speaker, and educator, and co-founder and clinical director of the Atlanta Wellness Collective, which is a private counseling and wellness practice here in Cobb County, Georgia. She really specializes in helping other high achievers recognize their generational patterns, anxieties, and core values to help them reach their full potential. Dr. Nicole also provides consulting services for other entrepreneurs in the mental health and wellness space. Dr. Nicole says she was born a high achiever, writing, let no one outwork you today on her bedroom wall when she was eight years old. She, uh, Her kind of claim to fame is she completed 10 years of college and a graduate education debt-free in a true overachiever fashion. She lives here in Marietta with her husband, RJ, and their amazing teenage stepdaughter. And you can find her on Instagram at CocoThax. That is C-O-C-O-T-H-A-X. So be sure to tune in and share with a friend if you guys like this episode. Welcome, Nicole, to the Little By Podcast. Thanks so much. I'm so, so, so pumped to be here today. I'm so excited too, especially as a fellow entrepreneur and a high achiever. I think uh, a lot of our listeners are going to learn a lot from this podcast. So tell us a little bit first, I just want to hear a little bit about your story and what made you want to become a counselor uh, as your career. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I'm always like, I'm a counselor, right? So I'm like, how far back do you want me to go? (laughs) (laughs) Well, in functional medicine, we go to birth. So you can go all the way back. Yeah, us too. Well, it's kind of cool. So I feel like there's multiple different stories as to why I became a counselor. I could tell you practically why I became a counselor. You know, when I was 18, I interned um, at basically a counseling site at a church and just was around counselors all the time and really loved what they got to do. You know, I could tell you that's how I got into counseling, just kind of being in that environment. I could tell you that I got into counseling just because of really my family of origin. If we want to go back that far, I have um, just this long history. I know we may jump into kind of generational patterns and talk about that a little bit. Um, I have this long family history of just people being really interested in mental health. You know, my great, great grandmother um, was hospitalized for mental health. On the other side of my family, I had a great great, I believe, grandfather who actually was in the mental health space, like way back when he was a PhD, worked in mental health and psychology. I just feel like it's kind of in my DNA and my genetics a little bit, just this interest in mental health and grew up with a family, my grandma, my my parents who were in counseling and in therapy and just never had a stigma around it. So 
I could tell you that's why I became a counselor. But ultimately, I think what we're getting into ultimately, I think most counselors get into it because we're really curious about how people work and why they do what they do and why we are the way we are and how we change. So, I mean, even at a really young age, I was always, always really curious about why people were the way way that they were, like why people did certain things that they did. So I think all of that ultimately led to me wanting to go into this mental health space and just kind of started pursuing it in college when I was um, an undergrad and changed my major to psychology and have kind of been on that track studying that ever since. And I think it's so fascinating. Mental health to me is very uh, intriguing as well, especially when you think about our brain only being about three pounds. Like it's yeah. a tiny, tiny organ that is the most powerful organ that controls our thoughts. And it just, it blows my mind. I find mental health fascinating as well. And I know just from us talking before that you work with a lot of kind of high achievers and in the yeah. anxiety space. Is that a passion maybe from speaking from personal experience? Like, is that something that you've dealt with that made you passionate about it? Or why um, kind of getting that niche of those high achievers? Yeah, so I would say 100%. It kind of comes out of this like selfish passion to figure out kind of why I am the way I am. Um, but here, here's kind of why, like when I started practicing I've always been really interested in anxiety. Um, It's kind of the thing that I know in and out. And really interestingly, there's this thing called that we call high-functioning anxiety. So I'll share a little bit about what that means. But when I was growing up, when I was in elementary school, middle school, high school, school, I would 100% be considered a high achiever. And I know you kind of connect with this too, Kristen. Yes. Um, maybe a lot of your listeners connect with this too, but I mean, I was eight years old writing. I mean, this is kind of something my parents always talk about. This is just who I was. I wrote on my wall really big, let no one outwork you today. And I was eight years old (laughs) and I always just had this really strong work ethic. It, It really came from my family and that was kind of who we were. We were hard workers. We were loyal. We were people pleasers. We were, um, achievers. And I got into high school, was incredibly overscheduled, over busy. I mean, president of everything, doing everything, varsity athlete, hardest classes in high school. And this really, this worked for me. Like this was my, this was my identity. This is who I was. And it was like, anything could happen to me. You could put anything on me and I could get it done and just keep pushing. So when I was in my early 20s, I actually went through a really, really traumatic um, experience. I um, I don't know that I've shared this with you. Um, I don't talk about this as much now, but I was married really early and actually went through an incredibly painful divorce in my early 20s. Um, and this, out of this came... Um, massive, massive amounts of anxiety. So I was diagnosed with multiple anxiety disorders, PTSD, um, just this very, very, very dark period of my life. And I was actually beginning graduate school for counseling while I'm going through all of this. So literally studying um, what I'm going through and experiencing. And I share this because 
I want to share a big part of anxiety. So when we talk about anxiety, we have the feelings of anxiety, right? Everybody feels anxious. Everybody, everybody feels stress. What I'm talking about, what I work with, what I treat and diagnose is um, from the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, we have multiple anxiety diagnoses. And the key, the key thing when you're diagnosing anxiety is that it impairs functioning. So you're not functioning as well as you used to. Well, my experience and what I see with so many of the clients that I work with is that in their anxiety, in my anxiety, I was actually overachieving. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I was, I was performing. I was outrunning the anxiety. I was putting more on my plate. I was doing more. I was working more hours. And it's this very strange type of anxiety where all of the diagnostic criteria would say that the anxiety is so high that you just can't function anymore. But I was seeing in myself and other high achievers that the anxiety was driving us to do more and more and more and more and not feel enough and not feel like we're ever doing enough. And so that's what got me into really this kind of niche of counseling. And I work pretty much 100% of my caseload um, is individuals who would consider themselves high achievers, who would consider themselves at the top of their areas, at the top of their fields, at the top of their high schools, and struggling with massive amounts of anxiety that's just really getting in the way and worries and fears and stressors. So long story short, that is what got me really passionate about this specific niche because in high achievers, anxiety just looks different. And that high achieving person, they may not be having negative symptoms, but their quality of life may not be looking as optimal as it could. And yep. and that could be like from a family dynamic, from the ability to relax, the sleep quality. So let's kind of talk a little bit about those high functioning anxiety or high functioning achievers. Because I, I would definitely put myself, I don't ever yeah. really feel overwhelmed or anxious. I don't ever have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. I don't stress eat. You know, a lot of those things that I look at, I don't have heart palpitations, high blood pressure when I meet with my patients in functional medicine. But I'm one of those people that if I don't have things overflowing from my plate, I'm like, what's going on? I feel, yes. you know, so I feel like I'm your perfect client. To relax. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm your perfect yes. client. So we're, we're really talking about me uh, during this interview as well. But what, what are some of the symptoms in those high functioning anxiety patients that maybe they wouldn't identify as a symptom of anxiety that you look for when you meet with them? Yeah, you're 100% like spot on. So a big one is that inability to kind of stop, that inability to kind of calm down, to calm the body, to do stuff for fun. That's a big one for me. Like if I'm doing fun things, I'm like, I'm not being productive. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that would be a symptom of this anxiety, this drive to continue to do more, to feel like you're not doing enough, to overschedule your schedule every single day. Um, a big, big, big part of anxiety is those physiological and body symptoms. So um, actually, this is funny. We think that psychology is all in the mind, but studies have shown that 90%, I'm sure you know this, 90% of serotonin is actually developed in the gut. Yes. Yes. We so, talk about that a lot. Yes. So a ton, a ton of these high achievers with anxiety have uh, a lot of gut issues, IBS, constipation, diarrhea, um, and the the kind of microbiome in the gut is just 
totally shot from the cortisol, the adrenaline that's constantly being pumped into the body from anxiety. So it's this inability to kind of calm the body, this inability to get into this state where, um, yeah, where we can be calm. Another one is like racing thoughts. So a lot of symptoms that I see with anxiety is racing thoughts, really active um, negative thoughts or anxious thoughts about the self, about others, about the world, about the future. Um, this propensity to constantly be looking ahead to the future and difficulty kind of existing and staying in the present moment. So a lot of the time when we're evaluating anxiety, it's really like mind, body, quality of life, like you said, sleep issues. It can really be any of these related things. And do you see that these like high achievers, how do they know that they need you? So if they don't identify that they have anxiety, how do they get to a point where they book an appointment with you? You know, I feel like everybody that comes to me is just on this different path, but I think that um, a lot of the time, maybe other people in their life are encouraging them to come to counseling, to start therapy, Um, a parent, a friend, somebody who says, hey, I'm really worried about you. Like, you seem really overwhelmed. Um, Sometimes it will be a specific life event that has just really put them over the edge. Like, they are able to function and the anxiety. Remember we the term that I used is high functioning anxiety. So they're able to function really highly through the anxiety. But then let's say it's someone going through a breakup or someone, oh, oh my gosh, um, hello, like the COVID pandemic, right? And <laughs> yes. there's job loss. There's all sorts of life events that can just put people into a spiral where they're like, oh my gosh, I cannot continue to manage this on my own. And so I see that a lot of people come into my office um, in crisis or in a life transition or in something where they just feel like they're not able to cope with it on their own anymore. Yes. And I think one of the things I identify with is that I realize you can't maintain that same pace forever. And even when you think about the physiology of the cortisol and how it's highest in the morning and gradually goes down, if you're really just pushing and pushing and pushing, eventually your body gets tired. And so one of the things, just even with me opening stat, is every like two to three months, I did an adrenal saliva test to see how my body physically was managing the stress and the demands I was putting on my body to identify identify when there was an issue before I actually had an issue. Um, but a lot of people don't realize that physical connection to the stress and the anxiety. And just as you said at the beginning, like we take a very big mind body approach and it's all connected, even when you mentioned the gut. So I feel like you kind of answered this, but do you feel like people with anxiety realize they have anxiety or is this something that more people from the outside are telling them, or there's a life event that triggers it? Um, or how would you say that the patients that come to you, they have a life event, someone tells them that they should book with you, they meet with you. Do you have a certain kind of symptom questionnaire that you go through? How do you help them identify that anxiety is potentially one of the root issues that you guys need to work together on? Or do you never even tell them it's anxiety and don't like label them with something? So I actually, I I feel like most counselors, oh my gosh, so many good questions. Sorry, my mind is going everywhere. I feel like um, I am in the camp where as long as the I really am patient-led and client-led. So if they're okay labeling, 
it as anxiety, then I'm more than okay with doing that. If that brings them freedom, if that helps them understand their symptoms better. If a client, I'm thinking about a really, really high achieving client um, in athletics that I work with and I've been working with her for a few years and she was not okay using the term anxiety, like just not okay with it. And so I'm, we work around that and we just talk about symptoms and just describe symptoms. So I'm really, really client led with that. But I think that, um, a lot of the time, you know, when people are coming in, it's, an initial evaluation. So I'm really taking a huge history of like their entire biopsychosocial history. We look at generational patterns. We look at um, childhood adverse events. We look at traumas. We look at physical symptoms, physiology. I mean, we're really looking at all of their kind of life. And I mean, you could even go into nutrition and diet and all of that just to see kind of what is really, who are they? Like, who is this client? What is negatively impacting them? And a huge part of it is asking them what they want to work on. So again, being very client driven, like if they are saying that they feel overwhelmed, if they are saying they really want to work on decreasing their anxiety, working on coping, that's what we really go with. That's kind of what we work on and approach. And sometimes it's very multi-layered. So we're working on physiological symptoms first, calming the body with breath work, calming down um, the fight or flight response that they've just been over the top stressed out for a very long time before we get into maybe some of the negative thoughts, um, the core beliefs, the family work, the attachment work, like stuff like that. So it's very like multi-layered, but for each client, it's very unique. And I go based on what they are comfortable sharing, talking about, et cetera. I really like the patient-led approach. If they want, if the anxiety is freeing to have that diagnosis, you do it. If not, you really just yep. work on the symptoms and kind of why they're there. I think that's great. And is the term, so you said that everybody can feel anxious at the beginning. You mentioned that. And yeah, one of the things I wonder, like, is the term anxiety, is that is that always a negative thing and stress can be beneficial? And if it turns into that anxiety, that's always bad? Or is there some level of anxiety that's actually beneficial for our performance, our work, our, you know, realizing there's deadlines? Would you put anxiety and stress in two different categories? Uh, kind of elaborate what beneficial stress or would you use the term anxiety versus poor stress and anxiety looks yeah. like? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely correct. So I, I tell people anxiety is a feeling. Anxiety is a feeling that all humans have emotion. All, all humans have feelings, right? And so I put anxiety in there on the feeling chart. I've got a feeling chart in my office, right? Every good counselor should. And it's like, just like sadness or anger or worry, like Anxiety is something that all people are going to feel at certain times. And there is good anxiety. Um, you're definitely onto something. So our, I don't know if you're familiar with the Yerkes Dodson curve. Have you ever heard of this kind of curve? So I think Yerkes and Dodson curve are like, where there's is. you stress and de stress. It is. So there's a point of anxiety where having anxiety is going to peak our performance, let's say before a test or before um, a presentation or just to wake up in the morning, like you said, cortisol increases in the morning to wake us up and get us motivated to do things. So if we had no anxiety, and I'm, this is kind of like a myth that I have to share with so many people, they come into my office and they're like, I just want no anxiety. I want 
to feel no stress, no anxiety. And I say, that's not beneficial for you. Like some level of anxiety is what's going to help you in your life. So what we're talking about when I'm getting into talking about the DSM stuff, the actual like anxiety disorders, like clinical levels of distress is when that anxiety is so far to the side, so far on the bell curve that it's no longer productive for us. It is shutting us down. It is shutting our body down. Um, Our mind is just completely entrapped with the anxious thoughts. It paralyzes us. And this is when we're getting into that fight, flight, or freeze response where our body is just in constant protective mode and really unable to get into kind of a calmer space. So I would say that a lot of the time, a certain level of anxiety and stress is really good for us. We all will feel anxious like before nervous things, right? I get anxious before I ride a roller coaster. That's self-preservation. That is normal and healthy. But when it gets to the point where it's so distressing that it's impairing their life, or let's say it's a big, big, big life event that none of us are really truly prepared for. Like, I'll just use myself as an example, going back to when I went through my divorce, like my anxiety had really been working for me, you know, and made me a high achiever and made me do all of these things that I did and everything else. But when it got to this life point where it was so extreme that it just shut me down, I didn't know how to process that kind of anxiety, process that kind of grief. And that's when I sought out counseling and counseling helped me through that. And one thing I think is everybody needs a counselor just because your life looks different during different seasons of your life. As you mentioned, the divorce, like that part of your life looks so different than when you were in college, you know, before the divorce and now opening your business looks very different. And so I think everybody needs that counselor as a non-biased person in their life to like really tell them maybe some of the coping mechanisms they should be incorporating in. And so even if you're like a high achiever and you're in a period of you stress and you're really performing well, I feel like it's still a good time to loop in a counselor to discuss coping mechanisms because you're not always going to be in that you stress category, especially as a high achiever. So what are some of the kind of strategies that you use to help your clients Uh, combat this anxiety? Is there certain things that you do like breathing techniques or journaling or what are some of the things that you found to be the most beneficial? Yeah. So stage one, I mean, this is always what I'm starting out with, with clients. It's building awareness. So I call this just increasing consciousness. You'll read a lot about this if you've read any kind of psychology books, but if we're not aware of our internal thoughts, if we're not aware of our internal physiological state or our state of hyper arousal. Like we can't really do anything coping wise to work on it. So the first strategy that I always walk through with clients is becoming conscious of their one automatic negative or anxious thoughts. Like a really practical way to do this is just to throughout your day, check in with what you're thinking about or check in with how your body is feeling. Am I tightening my jaw? Are my shoulders really tight? Um, Am I tightening my stomach? You know, a lot of those are guarding techniques that our body does when it's in stress. Think about if a bear is running at you, right? That fight flight response is going to kick in and you're going to prepare your body. And we often do that when we're feeling stressed, when there's not even really anything to be stressed about. We're just in that state of anxiety. So 
being conscious of what your body is doing, relaxing the jaw, relaxing the body, and then being conscious of what you're thinking right now. So I did this practice. Um, I do this practice kind of every morning where I'll journal uh, for maybe five minutes about what some of my automatic anxious thoughts have been just that morning. Um, I did it this morning and I write them down and it's like, I'm already worried that my day is going to go by so fast and I'm not going to get what I need to get done today. Um, I'm worried that, um, you know, I'm not going to get to spend time with my stepdaughter today because I have some work stuff going on. And we think these automatic anxious thoughts all the time, but rarely are we really conscious about them. And rarely do we actually spend some time sitting in the distress. (laughs) So checking in, becoming conscious, becoming aware of what they are, and then working to replace them working on that self-soothing muscle. I mean, it really is like a habit of self-soothing and being able to calm yourself down. So I do this with breath work. Absolutely. Um, Set an alarm for 10 minutes. Um, I try to do this pretty much every morning, set an alarm for 10 minutes on an empty stomach, do some deep belly breathing, breathing in, holding the breath for two to three seconds, breathing out, and just simply being with your breath for five to 10 minutes. Um, yoga is a huge way to increase like the mind body connection through breath work and movement, um, great nutrition and exercise, of course, meditation, thought work. Um, a big part of the work that I do is cognitive behavioral therapy with clients. This is a very researched, um, type of therapy where you go into those core beliefs, um, and really work to kind of root them out. And this is so easily done with a counselor because it's somebody who's bouncing the ideas off of you and you have somebody who's trained to do this to kind of help you get into these core beliefs. Um, So those are a lot of strategies that I work on with clients. We could get into in therapy. We do kind of inner child work, attachment theory kind of work, working on those generational patterns, going back into childhood and where these kind of learned beliefs and core beliefs came from, kind of rooting that out. Um, so I would say that's kind of an overarching as far as strategies go. Is there any, uh, like actual breathing, like breathing in for five seconds, holding your breath? I know you mentioned holding your breath for two to three seconds. Is there any that you find works better as far as how long to take a deep breath and how long to exhale as well? Yeah, honestly, a lot of this comes out of, are you, I'm sure you're familiar with Wim Hof. Yes. Yes, I love his stuff. So really what I do is I will YouTube um, mindfulness, breathwork exercises. And I've found some stuff through Wim Hof. There's great apps like Headspace, Calm app. Um, Some of them you have to pay for. So I encourage clients to go to the YouTube channels because it's typically free content. And whatever floats your boat that works for you. A lot of the time when we're starting a breathwork practice... What this is doing is it's physiologically training the body to calm down because when we exhale, we're signaling to our brain and to our body that we're okay. We're not under threat. We're not under attack. And so my key thing is to make the exhale longer than the inhale. So inhale like that is signaling flight, fight. Because when we're actually under attack, our body goes into this space where we kind of hold our breath in order to run away, to fight. When we extend our exhale, long exhale, maybe for six, eight, 10 seconds out, 
we're signaling to the brain and to the body and to the lungs that we can calm down, that we're not under threat. Because basically anxiety is this sense in the body that we're under threat all the time. And which, you know, for many populations, think about um, individuals who really are under oppression or racism or you're in an abusive relationship or domestic violence or even an abusive relationship with a boss or a coworker you are under constant threat, right? And so the body is responding to that. And when we give ourselves, when we allow ourselves 10 beautiful, peaceful minutes of breath work, we're signaling to to our bodies that you're okay. And so I typically recommend to start, if you're just starting out with a breath work practice, look up some YouTube stuff, mindful breathing, um, follow those, see what you like, do the same one every day. Or you could breathe in, I call it box breathing. So breathe in for four to six count, hold for two, three, four count, breathe out longer, six, eight, 10 seconds, and then practice that for about 10 minutes, just that kind of routine. And that, I always talk to my patients, I'm like, what is the side effect of taking deep breaths? So there's none. And I think it's, (laughs) I think that along with exercise is some of the best anxiety, depression therapies that is side effect free. Um, And so I'm really glad that you brought that up. That was one of the big, when I looked at my life, when I first opened STAT and just my limited time, I just felt like I'm not going to sit there and do a 30 minute meditation. It's just, it creates more anxiety for me. And it wasn't what I could do in that season of my life, but I can three times a day, take a step back and do slow, deep breathing. And that really was one of the best tools that I had, um, in the busyness of opening a brand new business. I'm really glad that you mentioned that. And you also mentioned um, the cognitive behavior therapy, which I think is huge. And so I just wanted to see, like, if somebody comes in and sees you and starts doing cognitive behavior therapy, how many sessions, and I know this is probably very individualized, but it takes multiple sessions to notice improvements with cognitive behavior therapy. Is that correct? Or do you see a benefit after just one session? So that's a good question. And again, I'm going to always defer to, like, it's client-led And so whatever a client feels like they have benefited from, then we're going to go with that. Some clients just for maybe financial reasons or anything else, they want to do maybe three to six sessions and can see some really great benefits um, from some cognitive behavioral therapy, from just working on coping skills. Um, And I do that with some clients. If they need three sessions, if they need six sessions, if it's kind of a crisis situation, they want some skills, they want to process... Um, They're really willing to do some active homework um, outside of therapy and really dive in and practice this stuff. That can work for some people. Other people, you know, we start with some CBT and we start with some thought work and um, just other therapy stuff. And it's, it's wild. Like, I mean, I really do have clients I've been working with for two, three, four, five years where... With that, we're typically getting more into a lot of trauma work. We're getting into the generational patterns work. Um, We're doing a lot of attachment work. So I would say CBT is a great, great, great starting point. And it can be done in a short amount of sessions. And then always do people kind of have other things they want to dive in deeper with. And it's totally up to the client. I mean, I've been in therapy on and off for the past 10 years and always have stuff that I'm working on processing. Um, and I tell people, I tell clients, 
I do this for a living every single day and I still have to actively work the process. Right, right. So it's not something you just like are healed from and you're good forever. It's like there's always reasons to be working on yourself, whether that's in counseling, on your own, whatever that looks like. And that's very much like what I preach too, because you look at the stat wellness W and there's a triangle in the middle of the mind, body, spirit, and there's a gap and there's just room for improvement in all of us. And I am very similar to you and I do my own blood work every three months. I'm constantly tweaking things, constantly trying to be better because there's always room for improvement and it changes during each season of your life. So I'm really happy that uh, you kind of implement all the things that you preach as well. I think that's huge. And you talked about generational patterns at the beginning and you mentioned it um, again, kind of with uh, what a typical session looks like for you. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what that means, the generational patterns, and maybe some things that our our listeners can think about as it relates to their generational patterns? Absolutely. So for anybody wanting to start getting into some of this generational pattern and trauma work, what I'm really talking about and referring to, we call childhood conditioning. So I love, love, love the research in this area and love talking about this because the purpose, and I have to share this, the purpose is not to shame, not to blame, not to place blame on parents, grandparents, you, your childhood. That is not the purpose. The purpose, again, is just to build awareness and become conscious around the messages and conditioning that you received throughout your childhood. So this is a lot of work that I'm doing with clients because I see so much so many aha moments when it's like we can dive into, um, for example, many of these things are very, people would say they're very genetic. Now, I'm not a genetics expert, but what I can say is that there are patterns. So for example, I'll just use myself as an example. My family has deep, deep generational patterns of mental health issues, of anxiety, of divorce, of alcoholism and addiction, um, people-pleasing, high-achieving. I say this because I've done a lot of this kind of work going back, looking at, um, I'm, I'm very interested in family history and stuff like that. And so talking to my parents, talking to my grandparents about my great-grandparents and their story, my grandparents and their story and what they went through and how they coped. How did they cope with their trauma? What did they experience out of their trauma? And when we do that, what we're doing is just becoming aware of the things that are passed down to us. This is the conditioning that we grew up with. We don't live in a silo. We're not born in a silo. And everybody's family has influence on them. So when we can recognize and just build awareness around these generational patterns, again, not to shame and blame, it gives us so much more insight into why we are the way we are. So this can begin with journaling, journaling um, different messages that you remember your parents or your, your let's say, your um, parental figures, your adult figures in your life, messages that they gave you growing up about yourself, about the world, about others. One of the messages, um, again, I'll just be a little transparent here for the sake of clarity. Um, One of the messages that when I am doing some of this generational pattern work myself, one of the messages that I received growing up is that the world is unsafe. So this kind of becomes a core belief, right? This kind of becomes a childhood conditioning of the world is unsafe. And the way that I received this message is I remember every single night my mom going around out of her own anxiety 
and checking all of the locks in the house. My family never, ever went to sleep without setting our alarm system. And we would be at home even in the middle of the day and have the alarm system of the house on. It took me years, years to feel like it was okay that my husband and I don't have an alarm system in our house now. Now, nobody, please come and break into my house. But <laughs> that is a that is a childhood conditioning. That's a generational pattern that I grew up witnessing all the time. I have memories of uh, my mom hearing things at night, getting really scared. My dad would travel, be out of town, and she would run down the stairs. My room was downstairs next to our stairwell. She would run down the stairs, run into my room. I heard something upstairs. I heard something upstairs. I'm 14 years old. Like, what am I going to do about if there's somebody in our house, right? And my mom um, wouldn't mind me sharing any of this. We have a super close relationship. My mom is amazing. Um, But these are some of the things where when we're doing this generational pattern and trauma work, we're diving into the messages and the conditioning that we received as kids about mental health. Maybe your family never talked about emotions. Maybe they were very uncomfortable. The only emotions that you witnessed as a child were anger or anxiety, like in my family. It was always anxiety. And if it wasn't stress and anxiety, then it was addiction. It was coping with alcohol, coping with um, even high-functioning type addictions like um, excessive exercise or so many childhood conditioning messages around food and weight, especially for females. So I could talk about this all day, but I hope that kind of gives you an overview of what I'm talking about when we're getting into those generational patterns. Absolutely. And I feel like knowledge is power. So being able to identify those things, I'm sure makes your work as a counselor much more effective to know the background and the generational patterns. And that's one of the things I think of as far as nature versus nurture. And I now have a five-month-old at home, and it's just become very clear to me how me as a mom, how I influence her thought process as she's growing up. And it's it, it kind of is nerve-wracking at the same time because I'm like, man, I really want to be the mom that can instill good coping mechanisms from a young age. I don't want her to see that, you know, work is your identity. Like that's a big thing that I think about is I work a lot and I don't want her to think growing up that work is my identity. And so figuring out how do you nurture your young ones to maybe not be um, impacted by some of those things that they see growing up. And I just really think nurture and nature plays a huge role. And one of the things I've done with my whole family is I'm really, really big into the Enneagram. I know people on this podcast have heard me talk about it a few times because it's just been the biggest and best tool for my, me and my husband and my marriage. And so I brought it into Stout Wellness. Every single person we hire does the Enneagram. Um, I have every single person in my family and my in-laws and every single person do the Enneagram. (laughs) And what's been really interesting to me is, and my theory so far is, is correct, but the parents, if you look at like my parents' Enneagram and the three children, me and my brother and my sister and my husband's parents and their kids, you are a blend of your mom and dad when it comes to the Enneagram and personalities, which tells me that a lot of this is nurture, that 
changes our personality and our thought process and the way we are um, versus nature and the genetic component. So, you know, when we look at your health from functional medicine lenses, it's really about 10 to uh, 25, depending on the article you read, is genetics. And that 75 to 90% is really your lifestyle, your environment, your upbringing, and all those other variables. But I just find the Enneagram and that connection so interesting when we talk about generational patterns is we we are influenced by our pa- our parents' thought process. And we do need to think about the way we were raised and some of the conversations we had. So I just, I love that you brought that up. And I'm, I love that you bring that into every session with your clients. So I'm just curious, are you into the Enneagram at all? Is that something that you've looked at? Yes. Okay. And I have to know what Enneagram you and your husband are. Oh yeah. So I'll, uh, I'm a, <laughs> could you guess what I am? I know that we don't no. know each other too well yet. Are you a three? Three is my third one. So I'm very, my first three are very, very close. um, But Achiever is actually my third one. Okay, wait, which one are you? I'm a seven. I'm an enthusiast. Interesting. Okay, sevens. I have a lot of seven friends. And my (laughs) husband is a six, which is super fascinating because sevens and sixes are like polar opposites. Um, Crazy. But one of the like examples for us is when we were using communication, I would come home with a new business idea like every single day. I'm like a serial entrepreneur. I see opportunity in everything. I'd come home super, super excited about this idea. And my husband would just like poke holes in it. And he was like never excited. He had a million questions. And I love my husband, by the way, he's amazing. And he balances me so well, (laughs) but it would make me so frustrated. I'm like, can't you just be excited for two seconds? Can't you just like for one second, be just happy. And I had him do the Enneagram and out of all nine of the personality types, his ninth one is enthusiast. Like his score was like a four. So he is never going to approach these ideas with the enthusiasm that I want him to. And so it made me understand his mind and his thought process and the way he responds to things like this. He's going to be more analytical. He's going to have questions. And so it, it just made us understand each other. Um, but yes, I'm a seven and then, uh, wing, wing challenger. And then he's a six and, I'm certain that he's got a wing to the investigate the five. Um, but yes, but tell okay, me, I yours. love this. I love this. Okay. Yes. We, my husband and I, my husband is a counselor too. We work together. He is a huge Enneagram guy and I love Enneagram. We do use it with clients. Love, love, love how Enneagram just like really gives some of these insights and awareness. Right. Um, my husband is a four, so he is like the individualist, super deep, super feely, like all in his feelings and creative, but he is a wing three. So he has that achiever, that kind of entrepreneur in him too. And then I'm actually a six. So I completely get your husband, (laughs) but my six. So I don't know if you're familiar with the phobic and the counterphobic six. Are you familiar with this? No. Tell me about it. Okay. So the six is super interesting. And the thing that I love the most about the Enneagram is those like, what is it? The core needs. Is that what they call it? The core needs? Yes. Okay. So the core needs for the six, you know, is safety and security, right? So a lot of people think like everybody thinks that I'm a three. They all think I'm a three, but the the six moves to three and the reason I realized I was a six is because of those core needs. So I'm not achieving 
three, I'm not achieving for the achievement's sake. I'm actually achieving deep down for safety and security. That's the need that the six has. And so there's two types of sixes. There's the phobic six, which the phobic six in fear or anxiety shrinks back. Remember, we talked about this. It impairs functioning. They shrink. They freeze. They can't move forward. They're immobilized. The counterphobic six in fear and anxiety pushes through. It pulls that three, that achiever. And in fear and anxiety, when safety or security is threatened, the counterphobic six like busts through the walls. And so my counselor, her daughter, she's a four. My counselor is a four. It helps me understand my husband so much to work with her. And her daughter is a six, but she's a phobic six. And so I, as a counterphobic six, present completely different than a phobic six. So most people don't realize that I'm a six, but I didn't know if you were familiar with kind of those nuances. The six is very nuanced. No, I was not. But I actually, like, I love sixes. Like, I think they are some of the best employees. Like, I, when I send the Enneagram, I I look for sixes because, yes, yes, they're loyal. They think things through. They're detail-oriented. They, I, they just are the exact opposite of me. So I love, I love having sixes around. So I think that's great, but I have not heard of that phobic and counterphobic six, but it's just fascinating. And the reason I love the Enneagram is it doesn't put you in a box. Like we have all nine in us and I like personally don't love personality types where they're just like, okay, this is what you are. It's like, no, this is your strength, but you have all of this in you. Um, So yeah, I find it really, really fascinating. Have you seen, and and this is, um, I don't know, probably a pretty basic, uh, question just because I know some of the numbers, what they mean, but have you seen certain numbers correlated with anxiety more than others? You know, I I was kind of thinking about this. Obviously the six is like kind of known as the anxious one, right? That's kind of like, I guess the stereotype of the six. <laughs> um, but I see, especially with that phobic six, I think the counterphobic six too, because it's all about safety and security. And ultimately, anxiety is an emotion that is protecting us, right? It's giving us that safety and security. So you're going to have that with the six. I see a lot of anxiety. I'm not going to like totally, I, I hate like, like you said, I hate putting things in a box, but I do see some anxiety with the one the two and the nine. It's kind of those more like people pleasing, helping perfectionist types where I think anytime we lean too heavily into that unhealth of people pleasing or unhealth of being uh, constantly the helper, you know, ignoring our own needs, I think that we can get really anxious about that. Um, But I'm trying to think because I feel like those are probably the heavier ones that I see with the more anxiety. (laughs) And what I'm thinking, and this just kind of goes back to, I think, how everybody feels anxious. um, And at the very beginning, you mentioned that. I'm thinking, okay, the achiever, they can feel anxious because they have to always perform really well. And then I think about like the investigator, they like really want to research and know things very thoroughly. So they could feel anxious if they don't know something as deeply as they want to. So it's really like, I feel like every single one of the numbers will feel anxiety because we're all people and it may just look different. Uh, But I think that's just such a good uh, tool. So I am curious um, because one of the things, you know, both of us being female uh, business owners and kind of thinking of our male counterparts, do you, I'm just curious if gender in your specialty seems to play a role at all in this kind of high achiever anxiety 
any, do you have any thoughts on the role gender plays? You've talked a little bit about personality and generational patterns, but what about gender? So I really, I really don't think that there is a difference as far as gender goes with like maybe experiencing anxiety as high achievers, but I do see a big difference. Um, I work with both women and men. It's typically more the symptoms that are coming out of the anxiety that I see a difference. Um, I don't want to be, again, too stereotypical, but it's like with men, a lot of the time anxiety comes out and looks like anger or control. So um, I have this one guy that I've been working with for about a year super guys guy, super tough guy, um, works in, uh, law enforcement, um, does contracting work with, works with his hands, you know, ex football player, like super, super man's man started coming to see me actually because of some trauma related family issues. So was not coming to see me because of anxiety. And, um, very quickly did we realize his high, high, high need to control relationships, every aspect of his life, his schedule, getting really controlling with his exercise and working out, really liked his job in kind of this more uh, law enforcement space because of how structured it was. And really, it was working with him to understand a lot of this was coming out of anxiety. Again, very high achiever, going into some of his generational patterns. You know, his dad was almost military-like and, um, you know, was never allowed to show any weakness. Um, That was actually a family motto for their family. Um, So-and-so boys don't show weakness. Like we don't show feelings. He has a lot of memories as a kid growing up and um, his dad was a coach and telling him um, he would cry when he got hurt on the field as like a little eight-year-old in football and his dad would come over and yell at him for crying. And so a lot of this anxiety pent up for him as control and just controlling every aspect. Now, can you see this in women? Oh my gosh, 100%. A lot of it can come into food control or trying to control the outward appearance, people-pleasing, which is ultimately just controlling how others around you view you because all of that diminishes anxiety. It's not healthy ways to diminish anxiety, but it works until it doesn't work. And so I see it playing out differently a little bit where a lot of men won't call it anxiety. You know, men blowing up over really small things, um, Some people will say, oh, they need anger management. They're just so angry. But it's really the anxiety is pent up, pent up, pent up. And the anger outburst is a way to emotionally regulate and kind of get that anxiety out of the body. So with women, I see it, uh, whether we're kind of phobic or counterphobic, either completely shutting down from the anxiety or um, overachieving, doing more, 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 more. Also, the automatic kind of anxious thoughts and negative thoughts can tend to look a little bit different in men than they are in women. I think just because of our societal messages that women receive versus men receive, some of those, um, the thought work that we're doing and the CBT work can kind of look different in men and women. But I'd say overall, a lot of men experience more of the physical symptoms of anxiety. So a lot of men wind up in the hospital thinking that they're having a heart attack, chest pains, and it's a panic attack or anxiety because um, men tend to ex- 
ex, uh, what is it, experience anxiety a little bit more physically, I would say. Women, I see more of the GI issues, um, inflammatory type stuff, um, things like that. I'm also like highly stereotyping. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's really interesting and it's something that I've gotten into a little bit more just because of some of the studies that have been done looking at the actual brain, like the mm-hmm. white and gray matter difference between males and females. Like there really is um, kind of a physical difference in our brains. And there was a study, and I think it was by Amen Clinic, which is actually here in Atlanta, where they were looking at the brain and cognitive empathy between males and females and females had more cognitive empathy and they were thinking the hormones may have played a role in that, um, which is really interesting. So I was just curious if you saw that because that cognitive empathy makes us, they're thinking really fantastic leaders as females, um, but cognitive empathy, you you can feel a little bit more, like just the differences of our brain matter, which is just fascinating to me. So I haven't, I haven't been able to dig too deep, but I've read a couple articles that are just interesting when it comes to the, the brain of males and females. Well, and something that you just reminded me of, something that I'm constantly talking with my women, female clients is we have very varying hormonal patterns throughout the month. With our menstruation cycle, we have um, just these periods where we're going to have these bursts of hormones, our moods are impacted differently. Men, as far as my awareness and kind of study of this goes, I don't work as much with men as I do with women, but with men, they have a much more stabilized kind of hormonal pattern throughout the month, you know, and all of this stuff impacts our hormones, impacts our moods, impacts our irritability, our anxiety, our sadness and depression, and we're regulatory beings. So, A big thing that I always share about with clients is this thing called homeostatic impulse. Are you kind of familiar with this or have you, I don't know if you've heard this term. I've heard of the term, but elaborate. Yes. So homeostatic impulse, the purpose of this, basically what this means is that the brain loves to live on autopilot. Okay. So we like to keep homeostasis in, in terms of regulating our bodily functions. So our brain loves and is super comfortable with autopilot. And this is what makes change so difficult sometimes because we're going against the homeostatic impulse to make changes. This can look like mental resistance to making changes or doing breath work. But ultimately, the purpose of the homeostatic impulse is to create balance in the mind and body. It's what regulates us, kind of keeps us at this even playing field. But let's say, based on your generational patterns and your childhood conditioning, that your homeostatic impulse is anxious, right? Is stress. The brain loves to live in autopilot. And so you're going to, your constant, your normal is stress and anxiety. The brain feels very comfortable there because it's what it knows. And so we're going to have a lot of mental resistance to change that and to be able to create new patterns with our moods. And all of this is impacted by hormones. It's impacted by just our physiology. We, we kind of want to remain in balance, right? But for good and bad, it could be good or bad. 
And that's where we use a lot of even like adaptogens and things like that to kind of help from a supplement yes. standpoint with that homeostasis. Um, yes. So I feel like, it, you know, the mind and the body is just so connected. So I'm just loving this conversation. And I, I always love to end because this has been so good, but with two questions. And the first one I always like to know is if there is a mental health myth that you want to bust for our listeners. Um, and then what is one simple change? that they can start doing today to have less anxiety to kind of summarize this um, episode? Yeah. So I think a huge myth, this is something that I feel like it's kind of my um, battle cry is that everyone can benefit from therapy and counseling. It is perfectly okay to ask for help, even if you're not in a crisis. Like maybe you just want to improve your life and get you know, further, faster, maybe you're doing really well, but everyone can benefit. It's hundred percent. Okay. To ask for help. I think the stigma around mental health is changing, especially with these younger generations. I work with, um, a ton of millennials and Gen Z and the stigma is definitely different, but that's a huge part of our practice as well. Um, at Atlanta wellness collective is just really making mental health, super approachable, super modern and individualized. Cause I think the stigma is going away, but I still think we have a really long way to go. I love that. I think that's so true. And I feel like, again, there's room for improvement in every single person. So pulling in that team, uh, is huge. And then what is one simple change that they can start doing to have less anxiety tomorrow? So I'm, I'm going to go back to what I shared about just increasing our consciousness, becoming more conscious of maybe what it is that is your autopilot. You know, this could be journaling a thought log of anxious thoughts that you have throughout your day, just becoming more aware and conscious of your anxious thoughts. And then maybe through breath work, through journaling, through exercise, just really working on um, self-soothing and kind of creating some structure and some good habits around soothing and calming the mind and the body. So kind of two simple changes, increasing consciousness, and then kind of increasing some of those coping skills that are unique to you that help you to feel more calm. And I think that's sometimes easier said than done to, you know, be more aware. So I think that's such a good starting place for all of our listeners. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people that loved what you had to say. If they want to book an appointment with you or check you out, where can they find you? Yeah. So our website is www.atlwell.com. That's A-T-L-W-E-L-L. We're also on Instagram. We're at atlwell. Um, and then my Instagram is at Coco Thax, T-H-A-X. So yeah, they can find us anywhere on there, book online, book a consultation. We have um, seven counselors who work on our team, are all licensed, have different specializations. And then we also offer chiropractic care and uh, massage therapy. And our Massage therapist is um, trauma-informed, so she does a lot of mind-body kind of emotion work through the body and how trauma kind of comes out in the body. So we love um, all of our providers work super holistically and kind of together to offer 
services for everybody. I love that. That's when people see the best results. And you guys really need to follow her personal handle too, because I was telling her before we got started, whenever I want to be in a good mood, I follow and look at her story. She's always dancing and very lighthearted and fun. So make sure to follow her. But thank you so much. This was wonderful. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day, um, especially as you know both of us that high performing, lots of things on our to-do list. I appreciate you taking some time to come and talk with us. Thank you so much, Kristen. This was awesome. Um, It's given me so much life and energy just to do this. This is my self-care, just (laughs) being able to connect with others. So thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, remember, little by little, a little becomes a lot. Even the smallest changes over time can lead to total mind and body transformation. I'd love for you to stay connected with at Dr. Kristen Oja and at Stat Wellness on Instagram. And if you have any questions, be sure to reach out. I'd love to hear from you.